normally when I record podcasts, I put together a a clear thought process. I, I write things down. I make sure I have all the proper caveats in place so that I'm not saying things that I don't really believe or I, I regret or that haven't been well thought out. The problem with that approach is, uh, as useful as it is, is that it takes well, two problems, really. One problem is that well, it produces something that's often a little more boring than it needs to be. Um, people like a little bit of controversy. I guess I can give a little controversy. I just uh, I don't have any problem walking things back if they haven't been well considered. So if I say something that really pisses you off or annoys you, maybe I didn't mean it. Maybe I did. I'm happy to clarify. The other problem with that, of course, is that it takes a great deal of time. Um, I'm able to squeeze it in here and there, but there are other things, other priorities, other things I want to stress and push on, uh, and I'd really prefer to produce more content using less time. The only way for me to do that is by speaking ad hoc in some way. I did that on Friday. I had a little, a little brief conversation about the, the horrors going on at the, uh, at the airport in Kabul, and... Uh, I didn't agree with everything I said. Uh, first thing I didn't agree with was that you know, the U.S. and the West, I spoke about their moral history. Of course, I didn't clarify that statement. And and and, uh, and um, clarify is not quite the right word. I didn't constrain that statement in terms of, of course, things that the West has done that has not been very good. It's all sorts of things, of course, and that's the general gestalt of the day, is that the U.S. and the West have never been moral, um, and so why would you expect them to be moral now? Uh, that's a whole different discussion, and actually, perhaps one we'll get into today. I haven't written this, I haven't scripted it out, so I don't know. The other, uh, the other issue, the other thing that came from that conversation, that brief podcast wasn't a conversation, it was a monologue on Friday, was that there is one thing I, I decided would be useful to do, and I posted it on Facebook. I realize I don't have a lot of people who read Facebook, um, and it's not necessarily the best platform, but it was a way for me to, to capture my thoughts uh, and share them. And so my uh, brief conversation, my brief thought process that I had from the uh, posting on Facebook, give me a second here, I'm actually going to open it because it makes things a lot easier to do. I did a hashtag, I will take one. Here's what I wrote. Some Afghan women are so desperate they are throwing their babies over razor wire fences in the scant hope they might survive. NATO soldiers are simply watching and crying. How about another approach? It is this simple. If my government will allow it, my wife and I will take one. We'll adopt an Afghan infant currently stuck in the no man's land between the Taliban and NATO forces. There are lots of terrible things in the world. Horrors in China, Venezuela, Syria, Lebanon, and so on. We can't solve these issues. The best we can do is bend them in our own little ways. Generally, I write books, like The City on the Heights, or my family and I make the choice to buy from Chinese suppliers only as a last resort. Facing these problems, I personally believe in a very gradualist and culturally focused approach to these problems, as in, you try to gradually adjust cultural realities among the people suffering. Mass immigration of Venezuelans or Syrians won't solve the underlying issues. It might just spread them. But when mothers are throwing babies over razor wire fences, you aren't dealing with some long-term issue or some grand policy. You're dealing with a short-term and very focused problem. Not all the babies made it. This isn't some cynical ploy. A few people are in terrible need, and so, hashtag, I will take one. How about you? So, gave a little bit more thought, thought about the policy a little bit more, uh, what I want to do, the kind of approach. And yes, I talked with my wife, and we would happily take one of these kids in order to rescue them. The challenge, of course, is much, much bigger than that. And the question and the, I guess, dichotomy 
is about what the role of the United States in the world is. Now, despite not living in the U.S., um, I am still a U.S. taxpayer. Uh, that is, unfortunately, taxation without representation. And there are lots of people like me in the world, U.S. expats, who are on the hook for U.S. taxes. So I feel like I have a right to speak about U.S. policy a bit as a we. Obviously, I don't live in the U.S., uh, but nonetheless, I feel like I, I'm contributing in some way to, uh, to the United States. Uh, perhaps I prefer not to, but that's a different issue for another day. So the question is, what is the U.S. obligation in the world? What should the U.S. be doing? And when I speak about the U.S., of course, you can speak about the country as a whole, but you're also speaking about children, about sons and daughters who sign up for the military, because it's not a coercive military anymore, it's not a conscription military anymore, who sign up and are sent abroad and whose lives are endangered in the service of some national interest or cause. The definition of that natural, national interest is extremely unstable uh, at this point in time. The variations between the different parties are pretty extreme, uh, and you end up with people really not being sure what they're signing up for when they sign up for the military. Are they signing up to defend um, American values? And what are those values? How are they extended? Um, how are they defended? All sorts of great problems are created. But I have written about in the past, and I do a little bit of Joe Biden here and vary a bit on my topics. I have written about in the past uh, the the concept of whether or not the U.S. should be offering any sort of security guarantee to Israel. Now, first of all, I don't think that security guarantee would be worth anything. Uh, the U.S. has demonstrated here in Afghanistan, but not only Afghanistan, in parts in the past before, that it doesn't necessarily stand by. When there's a change in government, uh, there's an opportunity for other people, for other actors to take advantage of a change, a fundamental change in U.S. policy. Uh, people like to point to Vietnam. I, I imagine actually that was probably inevitable. Richard Nixon was hardly a left-leaning guy, but he pulled out of Vietnam. Uh, you look at Jimmy Carter in Iran, uh, and the Shah was abandoned. Whether or not he should have been supported is a different issue, but he wasn't kept up and wasn't supported. Uh, and, of course, you see our actions uh, before the current crisis, our actions regarding the Kurds after the war with Saddam Hussein. We told them in no uncertain terms, we will back you up, we will defend you, and we didn't. Um, and there was a tremendous amount of slaughter that occurred as a result of that extremely dishonorable decision. Lots of countries do this. Lots of countries behave in these dishonorable ways. Um, Israel, for example, uh, withdrew from South Lebanon, and while we rescued some people who were South Lebanese allies of ours, uh, we left many of them behind, uh, and we allowed them to suffer the consequences of their working with us for many years. So the question is, is should the U.S. give a security guarantee to Israel? And aside from any practical considerations of whether or not that would be honored, there's an underlying question of whether or not it's appropriate for Israel to ask for such a thing. Does the U.S. owe Israel any sort of security guarantee? Do the children of U.S. citizens have any reason to be put into harm's way on behalf of the state of Israel? And I think the answer is no. 
I don't think that it's a reasonable request. It's a reasonable obligation to impose on people. Uh, and so I don't think a security guarantee from the United States to Israel is appropriate. Now, the United States supplies Israel with all sorts of support, um, but not men and women and soldiers. The United States supplies Israel with weapons, um, obviously with some sort of financial aid uh, and these sorts of things. But this comes far, far from being a security guarantee where we say <clears throat> if Iran attacks Israel, the United States will attack Iran. That's not the calculus. That's not the uh, approach. And I don't think it would be appropriate for it to be the approach with regards to Israel. So if we extend that thought process, as ill-formed as it is, I realize I haven't written things out in quite the way I normally do. But if we extend that thought process to Iran, sorry, not to Iran, to Afghanistan, the question is, is did the US, United States owe some sort of security guarantee to its allies in Afghanistan? And the image that keeps coming back to me is of a Wall Street Journal article that was written probably a year and a half ago about all these hipsters in Kabul who were getting tattoos. Now, obviously, I, I don't know my Islamic law all that well, but in Jewish law, tattoos are a big no-no. And I can imagine, given that the Taliban has executed women for walking outside without a head covering, I can imagine that tattoos are death sentence. To all these people who thought, you know what? The U.S. or some Western allied power <clears throat> or some non-Islamic power is going to hold its position in Afghanistan and in Kabul in particular. Not Afghanistan as a whole, but in Kabul. And we will be able to adopt this hipster lifestyle. All those people are a serious threat of being killed. Did they do this on a false assumption? A false promise that the U.S. would stand up and would help them? Would they have done it after Bagram Air Force Base was closed? I don't know. I can't make those decisions. I can't make those judgments. Obviously, on some level, they thought that their safety was sufficiently guaranteed for them to do things that were going to mark them for life as enemies of the Taliban. So does the U.S. have an obligation? I think it doesn't in Israel. Does the U.S. have an obligation in Afghanistan to support the Afghanis? Now, strangely, the Afghanistan situation is a very different one because the U.S. did come in and effectively offer security support to these people for an extended period of time. And they made life decisions on the basis of those security support promises. They made decisions they can never walk back on the basis of those decisions, and they are currently paying the price for it. But at the same time, Democratic governments bounce back and forth between different values, between different approaches. They create a great deal of risk because of the uncertainty in the way in which they act. It's one of the old, the old um, cartoons mocking the U.S. system is that you have a, sh a steady ship of state uh, in places that have monarchies. Uh, but in places that have democracies, you end up with the ship constantly shifting direction, not really knowing where it's going and so on. And so, by its very nature, any U.S., any um, <clears throat> democracy is unlikely to be a steady ally. Whether it's Israel, <clears throat> whether it's the United States, whether it's other people. Uh, an unfree country, uh, a totalitarian dictatorship, 
for example, is likely to be more steadfast. Not entirely. I mean, they make all sorts of real politic decisions. They throw lots of people under the bus. We can look at World War One. It wasn't exactly a collection of free states that got involved in everything that happened there. The German government was not a, a, a free one. Um, but you end up with all sorts of um, variations that occur every four years based on who most recently got elected. And those variations can be more or less dramatic um, based on the political climate of the country. And so you end up with the United States being uh, a, a country that didn't owe anything to Afghanistan, but then kind of did. What happened in Afghanistan wasn't America's problem until either the Afghanis made it our problem, and by virtue of 9-11, or we made it our problem by virtue of post-9-11 occupying the country and trying to rebuild it in our own view, in our own model. When we occupied the country and tried to rebuild it in our own image, in a way we were making a vow to all those people who supported our efforts, a vow that said, we are going to work with you. We are going to help you. We are going to support you. We're not allowed, we're not simply going to allow you to get killed. And when we, you withdraw from that sort of relationship unilaterally and suddenly um, and, and pull out, you end up with a moral vacuum and a moral obligation that is not being met, and in this case, on, on a terrible scale. People like to talk about Afghanistan as the U.S.'s longest war. Well, I guess the war in Korea was never called a war, but it had a lot in common. There are U.S. soldiers there. They aren't being killed. Uh, they live in uh, our friendly green zone, South Korea, um, and they've been there for many, many years. They've been there for 70 years. And the U.S. is providing a security backstop, not quite a guarantee, but a backstop to South Korea. And it's provided that backstop even before South Korea had anything related or, or connected to a democracy. It provided that backstop when Korea was a dictatorship because it was providing a support against a very, very different ideological regime in the North, uh, and it was preventing that from overwhelming the South uh, and, and, and crushing it. So you end up with an obligation being created in multiple cases. Now, if your local allies say, you know what, we don't want you anymore, the South Koreans say, please go away. The Japanese say, please go away then, of course, you have every means and every right to go away. But if you've made that connection and that obligation, then you are entangled in that local culture, in those local conflicts, in the local issues. And some, of course, there's geopolitical aspects to this. There's the, the war with communism, the war with, with radical Islam. <clears throat> That's ongoing. But when you decided to uh, ad ad adopt local allies, and you've made promises, in many cases explicit promises, that you're going to support them, then you've created a moral obligation. Now, not so long ago, not so many partiot ago in the, in the Torah, the Torah reading that we're doing is uh, Orthodox Jews, there's prohibitions against making vows. Now, you make a vow, but you have to, have to, have to keep it. Because when you make a vow, you create a new obligation, a new good, a new thing that has to be met. And as human beings who aren't in control, 
who can't foresee the future vagaries, the future twists and turns that might occur, those sorts of vows end up being fundamentally unstable. And they create a moral vacuum almost inevitably. So when you get involved, you will inevitably fail morally. You will inevitably have to make decisions that are not good decisions and are not consistent with the vow that you made when things were different. People look at the Jewish reluctance to make vows and we say, ah, they don't keep contracts. They aren't trustworthy, whatever it happens to be. But I think it's far more just a recognition of reality that things change. And if you make a promise to people that you're not going to keep, not because of anything you can foresee, but because of the unforeseeable, then you end up being morally culpable for failing to keep up your promises. So in the future, perhaps, when the United States goes into an Afghanistan, instead of promising to rebuild the country, we should qualify what we say. While we feel like being here, we give you support. While this serves our national interests, we'll give you support. It won't attract allies and friends the same way. It's a much weaker statement. But it's a truthful one. And one that leaves you without this sort of moral entanglement and new moral obligations that you never should have adopted in the first place. After 9-11, the U.S. should have attacked and punished the Taliban. Now, this is all 2020 hindsight. At the time, I didn't think so. But now I do. And I think when you're looking at future conflicts, this is more appropriate. The U.S. should have held a tribunal, a public tribunal, presented what evidence could be presented publicly. Obviously, not all of it could have been, but there was a fair amount and decided based on a rule of law, not the rule of the UN, which is simply the rule of law as defined by a bunch of tyrants, the de democracy of dictatorships, based on a rule of law adopted by people who are like-minded in how they think, made a decision about what the appropriate punishment for the Taliban government should have been, and carried out that punishment. That punishment could have been bombing the crap out of them. It could have been all sorts of things. It could have been temporarily allying with the Northern Alliance to sweep them from power. But it didn't have to include rebuilding the Afghani society, which is something that is quite frankly beyond the United States. And again, this is something I didn't think was the case. Obviously, I've learned, we've all learned, different societies behave very differently and the ways in which they can be influenced and changed is very, very different based on who they are. So the U.S. should have said, we're going to come in, we're going to carry out our judgment, and we're going to leave. And those who want to ally with us while we do this, feel free. Obviously, we'd welcome the Northern Alliance in that case. Their support, they still exist. They're still in the Pangea Valley, as I mentioned before. We welcome their support. But we don't have an obligation to stay. We don't have an obligation to continue supporting them open-ended. This is explicitly an opportunistic and a temporary relationship. I think that's far more honest, and I think that's the way the rest of the world is going to regard the United States from now on anyway. Any sort of alliance built with the United States is not something that is built on steady footing. Because you could shift from one government to the next, from one government to the next, and the, the variations and the willingness to actually uh, uh, adhere to the international promises of prior governments, not treaties, but promises, is, are extremely weak. 
Now, the United States, one of the reasons that it can't deal with culture in Afghanistan, that it can't change the culture in these places, is because the culture in these places has been engineered in order not to change. I had a fascinating discussion once. I was sitting next to you. By the way, ignore the noise in the background. My house is being remodeled. Um, I had a fascinating discussion once. I was sitting on an aircraft on a plane. I had lots of fun plane conversations. I love talking to people on planes. If you sit next to me on a plane and you tell me I don't want to talk, I won't. Or you put your earphones on and give me some subtle cues. You know, I'm fully capable of reading the go away signs. But if you don't, I'm willing to have a conversation. So I was sitting next to a, a guy who uh, who was a uh, what was the word he used? I think it was a cognitive anthropologist. I can't remember some sort of funky name like that. But basically, what he actually studied was is how societies and cultures form, and then how they sustain themselves over time. And what he was doing was really applying a very secular approach to trying to understand how the Jewish people had survived. I mean, that wasn't the only thing he was doing, of course. But that was one of the side effects of, uh, of his education. So you say, look, the Jewish people survived because they developed these certain cultural tools which enabled them to take form and then enabled them to carry on their message from generation to generation because of these cultural controls. So if you think about it in, uh, in terms of the creation of life itself, forget cultures, but you know, yogurt cultures instead of human cultures. If you end up with an organism which is able to define itself and then propagate that definition into the future, then that organism will have the ability on some time scale to survive. It'll have the ability to define itself and carry on the past from generation to generation while recognizably remaining the same organism. And of course, the only organisms that will come to be are the ones that have the capability. Because if something is temporarily organized, almost like an organism, and fails to have this capability to carry things forward, then it'll vanish. It'll be erased. And so life is self-propagating and surviving because life is self-propagating and surviving. Once it appears and has these capabilities built in, then it carries them forward ad nauseum. Now, of course, not all life is equal. Some organisms, as we're experiencing now with coronavirus, some viruses even, are very stable. <clears throat> you have a smallpox, four major varieties, thousands of years of human history, tremendous human cost. It didn't mutate much. So once we came up with smallpox, once we came up with other approaches to dealing with smallpox, vaccines, right? You come up with a couple of vaccines or a vaccine and you eliminate smallpox in very quick order, right? It doesn't mutate enough. Then you end up with the coronavirus. Now, coronavirus is an old thing. It's been around a long time. There's lots of coronaviruses. They mutate rapidly. They're the common cold, right? Constantly mutating. Now, of course, all the time the coronavirus is mutating, we have obviously an extremely dangerous variety. I'm not arguing about that. I'm not trying to say it's, it's the common cold. Of course it isn't. But because they mutate all the time, we broadly classify them as these coronaviruses, but they don't have the same attributes, right? We have COVID-19, and then we have deltas, and deltas, delta, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and we're going to keep continue having lots and lots of variants. And because it mutates so quickly, even when we have vaccinations, 
it's going to mutate around them. The very fact that a population is vaccinated means that some form that can survive in that new environment is going to be the form that survives. It will mutate in order to over, not in order to overcome the vaccines. There's too much intelligence. It'll mutate because the forms that do survive the vaccines are the ones that will replicate, and the forms that don't survive the vaccines are the ones that will be erased. So you're not going to vaccinate your way through this because it changes too quickly. But because it changes too quickly, before too long, it'll barely be recognizable as being the virus that started. It won't be the same creature. So we have the same thing in culture, in human cultures. There are cultures that are very, very well engineered to maintain their identity and not mutate. They stay in one form for an extended period of time. And then there are cultures that are constantly shifting and changing and adapting and are barely recognizable even from one generation to the next. So to give one extreme, Islamic culture, and particularly Arab Islamic culture, has built in all sorts of mechanisms, social mechanisms, etc., to ensure that its identity doesn't mutate. That it can carry on an identity from generation to generation that is largely unchanging. And there are all sorts of things that work to do this. One of the examples people like to talk about is honor killings. Right, an honor killing, it's not just a killing because your daughter or your sister or whoever didn't behave in a way that was appropriate. It's a killing that occurs because the rest of the family would be ostracized and kicked out of the culture because of the behavior of that one person. And so in order to preserve their honor, and ultimately in order to preserve the non-mutating uh, characteristics of the culture, you have to eliminate those things that don't adhere. And this can refer to the villages that make peace with Israel. There was a village on the coast of Israel that, that was an ally of Israel's in 1948. And the rest of the society decided that, that they would not be allowed to interact or intermarry with the rest of Arab Islamic, Arab Muslim society in Israel. I think just Arab society stopped. And so that group of people have been highly interbred and have developed very quickly all sorts of genetic issues because they've been cast out of that non-mutating body because they mutated in a way that was considered unacceptable. So this sort of mutation versus non-mutation, the other extreme from the Arab Islamic example is Western society. Western society in 2021 has adopted a variety of values that would be extreme and unrecognizable perhaps to Western society in the 1990s. 20 years, complete revolution. Forget good, bad, whatever, complete revolution in 20 years. This is because the U.S., not the U.S., sorry, Western society is a culture that moved from being a culture of values in which what mattered was what was defined by people who came before you, by authority, and moved to being a culture of thought process. Most notably is the scientific method, right? You, you don't, you, your truth is determined by the scientific method. It's not determined by what Aristotle thought. So when you end up with a scientific method being the way of seeking truth, 
then of course you want to extend that because it's such a powerful tool. So you say, okay, how do we define, this is going off on a bit of a tangent here, but how you define what's good in the scientific method, right? Well, it's very hard to do. Religious people say, you can't. The scientific method doesn't answer that question. But of course, others will say it, it can answer that method. You look at the golden rule. You look at uh, um, something that you can try to quantify and manage and understand. And the thing that, that, that popped up to the top is the number one thing is happiness. We're utilitarian. Our goal is to maximize happiness for the most people. And that's something that we can't quite measure it. We don't quite understand how to get there. But it's something we can define and aim for using the scientific method. And so that became the definition of good. The good is the most happiness for the most people. And of course, you have all those trade-offs, you know, more happiness for lots of people and one person suffers, whatever. You don't have to get into that. You end up with a definition. And of course, because happiness is so hard to measure, you extend that definition to something that's easier to measure, property, right? So you end up with the argument that you want to have a socialist system because it extends the most substitute for happiness to the most people. And that becomes a moral justification for a system of income redistribution and something that is based on not underlying values that you want to somehow fundamentally connect with the value of income redistribution. Instead, it's based on this thought process that says our logical process is XYZ PDQ. And of course, we have to look under the lamppost because we're not going to find our keys in the dark like a drunk is looking under the lamppost for his keys. And so you end up with this, 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 this system of thought process. And because this is the system of thought process and not of fundamental values, it can change its values remarkably quickly. People today think they found the answer. They found nirvana. They know exactly what's good. But it's quite possible that in 10 years, in five years, in three years, that definition won't be good enough anymore. You end up with a culture in which there is constant and, and aggressive change. And that change process, by the way, is not just a thought process for um, what's right, what's knowable, what's good. That process, that emphasis on process over underlying values extends to government. We look at what's good from a Western perspective and we say liberal democracy. Okay, why? Liberal democracy is not in and of itself a value system. The U.S. can shift from a liberal democracy that is socialist to a liberal democracy that is capitalist, right? It can shift dramatically based on the parties that happen to win. And as those parties become more extreme, it can shift more extremely on the basis of a few hundred thousand votes, one way or the other, someplace in the country. And so you end up with a system that enshrines the process of government more than some sort of underlying understanding of what good government is. Of what good government, of course, is a term we use to define the rule of law and, and fair judgments and these sorts of things. But I'm referring to good government as what the moral obligations of a government should be. And so when you have mastermind terrorists who visit the West, who are educated in the West, they go to Western universities and rather than being impressed and overwhelmed with how advanced we are, 
they see moral emptiness. Because what they're seeing is, this is the process of thinking, but they're not seeing any underlying moral anger for how people behave. The most famous example of this, possibly, is uh, al-Zarahiri, the uh, former number two in al-Qaeda. Actually, I don't know what his status is now, if he's still alive or not. Um, but uh, I do know that a friend of mine was a colleague of his uh, in New Zealand. He was a doctor, and Ayman al-Zarahiri was also a doctor, um, and they knew each other. Uh, this guy's an Orthodox Jew. Obviously, Ayman al-Zarahiri did not walk away from the encounter thinking, oh, we should be friends with these guys. Instead, when these people come to the West, they end up being disgusted by what they see. So earlier on in the conversation, it's not a conversation, of course, earlier on in this monologue, I was talking about how these interconnections end up creating a moral obligation. And one of the reasons that's so very dangerous for the United States and for the West as a whole is because the societies we're dealing with, the society in Afghanistan, is one that has been engineered not to change. Some individuals may want to run, whatever it happens to be, but they have tremendous social controls to enable the different ethnic groups within those areas to maintain their identity and who they are. Orthodox Jewish people maintain their identity. Yes, there's lots of things. I'm sure ancient people didn't wear black hats and suits. <laughs> of course they didn't. Nonetheless, there is this emphasis on maintaining identity that overcomes tremendous obstacles in order to accomplish what it wants to accomplish. It's engineered to accomplish, overcome, and maintain its identity in a world of constant change. <clears throat> and the West, by and large, is not. It's engineered to change in a world of change. It isn't constant. So when these two things clash, when these two approaches to the world clash, one brings much greater firepower to the equation, but the other brings much more endurance. And in the clash between the secular, the Western, the scientific, and the religious, the religious has the cultural tools to survive. Now, maybe not all religious, but certainly we can see that Islam does, and certainly Orthodox Judaism do, does. It can survive these sorts of conflicts. And so when you end up making an obligation, you're going back to that old biblical prohibition on humans making vows. Well, God makes vows all the time. The difference is that God keeps his vows because God has the power and the longevity to keep those vows. Humans do not. So when you're dealing with the conflict between a religious and a secular force, the religious force is going to outlast the secular force because they are tapping into that long-term divine multi-generational power. Whether or not you think their God exists, their culture has the ability to hold on to the strand that can outlast anything that a Western culture that embraces the process thought, the process of, uh, of finding values over the reality of those values. And it's not like we end up with perfection through the scientific method. 
we end up with a moral reality that is superior to the scientific method. It's different. I think, of course, there are shortcomings and shortfalls to everybody's approach. But the scientific method and the, and the, and the, and the government process, the, gov the government by process instead of government by values or government by kings or something like that, is something that enables us to have a battlefield between these different cultural approaches to the world. But that battlefield does not produce governments that are stable. So anybody should regard the promises of a Western government as being on very uncertain footing. And they can regard the promises of other governments as being completely unworthy as well for other reasons. Because those governments are practicing real politics, because they're practicing world domination, because they don't feel the obligation to behave in a good way at all. The U.S. is trying to behave in a good way. It's just not able to keep its mind on one version of what that means. But China, the Chinese government, their definition of good is very different. It's what's good for Han Chinese is good for everybody. And they're willing to do whatever it takes to make that happen. So if you're dealing with that sort of government, everybody knows. Don't treat them as if they're behaving in an honorable way. But increasingly, even though the U.S. is trying to behave in an honorable way, it can't be treated that way either. So what do you do about in Afghanistan? Well, I started off with, I will take one. If you have people who found themselves in this situation by virtue of the unstable promises of the West, then there's an obligation to rescue some of those people. Maybe not all of them, but an obligation, a moral obligation, trying to relieve them of some of the consequences of what happened. But there's also a realization, I think, that culture changes slowly, very, very slowly, and never from the outside. Well, not never. It can be influenced a little bit from the outside. But real change happens internally. And so to, con con to, to contrast with the Taliban, you need to have something like the Northern Alliance. You need to have another group that is indigenous. And we have the Northern Alliance once again. Another group that is indigenous that can slowly spread its own way of doing things. Now, of course, other people are involved. There's other sorts of connections, other sorts of battlefields, other sorts of people fighting. But ultimately, you just provide a little help to the people who represent the values you support the most. Not a promise, just assistance. In this case, it would be recognizing them as the government of Afghanistan so they can have access to Afghanistan's $9.5 billion in foreign reserves and special drawing rights. That would enable this local group of people, quite possibly, to organically and slowly begin to meld and create a different reality. But there's a much, much broader question that I want to get to very, very quickly. That much broader question is, is when should we be involved in foreign affairs? Should the U.S. or Israel or other countries for that matter simply withdraw within themselves and avoid these foreign entanglements and the moral hazards and minefields they inevitably create? Or should we embrace them? Is this how we change the world? Is this how we make things better? I'm going to go back to my own interpretation of another recent Parsha, another recent Torah reading, that of Shoftim. Shoftim starts out saying, these are the kings you have to select. And it defines the, the values of a king that you want. Now, a king is not somebody who rules you. A king is somebody who it's a, an honor to honor. 
Queen Elizabeth as queen despite being basically powerless. But Muammar Gaddafi was not a king, despite having a great deal of power. Because kingship is about honor. So this Torah reading ends up defining <clears throat> the king you want as being one of your brothers. As being somebody who does not pursue women or pleasure. Somebody who does not pursue horses or great military power. Right? You have these definitions, these limitations about the kinds of things that you embrace. And basically what you embrace is somebody who takes care of their own instead of being somebody who is seeking to make the nation great in any of the conventional senses. If you honor that sort of thing, uh, that sort of brotherhood, that sort of... Um, desire to help your own people, but not through conquest, not through glory, not through acquisition of wealth, um, but you're seeking to honor your own people and bring them peace and serve them in the, in the other ways that are possible, then you won't be the leader of a nation that is at war with its neighbors. You're not seeking glory. You're not seeking their possessions. You're not seeking pleasure. You're not seeking all the sorts of things that drive people to war with their neighbors. But we don't live in a world in which simply saying, I'm going to walk away like, uh, like it appears President Biden is doing, like to some degree President Trump was doing. We don't live in a world where Rand Paul, if you want to go to the, the right-hand side, the far right-hand side. We don't live in a world in which you can simply walk away and the world will simply ignore you and leave you alone. There's uh, something I like to say, which is that there are certain things that are best sought indirectly. Love is best sought indirectly. If you give off the vibe that you're desperate for it, then you won't find it. Happiness is best sought indirectly. Honor is best sought indirectly. And in this context, peace is best sought indirectly. You don't acquire peace by putting down your weapons. At the same time, you don't acquire peace by engaging in more wars than you have to. The Parsha is giving another perspective, another way in which you acquire peace, and that is by having a peaceful king, a king, a leadership, a, a, a value system honored by your people that is not seeking conquest, that is not seeking glory, that is not seeking these other things. And then if somebody attacks you in that situation, you have a well-regulated internal society that is managing itself and is not going to war with those outside, and somebody attacks you, then the story is always going to be the same. The other party is the aggressor. The other party is the one at fault. And the other party has a culture that is so fundamentally broken that it is attacking people who pose no threat to it whatsoever. And so, at the end of the reading... We have the people preparing for war. And remarkably, the Kohen, the priest, gives a speech that is an entirely boilerplate speech. He gives the same speech before every war. And then afterwards, you're supposed to absolutely destroy the enemy. You're making a lesson out of them. Because you're not fighting in this context because of anything you did. You're only fighting because they exhibited exactly those traits that you have chosen not to honor. Now, I can't think of a single society in human history 
I'm sure there have been, I just can't think of them right now, that followed these ideas. That said, you know what? We're not seeking glory. We're not seeking grandeur. We're going to stay inside of our borders. We're going to focus on regulating our own society. And if things go wrong, if people attack us, they're going to respond with an incredible vengeance. But we have seen the incredible vengeance perspective of it, perhaps, actually. Perhaps, obviously, its history further back was very problematic in this regard. But in certain periods, the United States was trying to stay within its borders and not get involved in the world wars. When it did get involved, especially in the Second World War, it did so in ways that were punitive. It said, we had no beef with Germany. Despite the, the Holocaust, maybe they should have had a beef with Germany, whatever you have. But we had no beef with Germany. Germany picked a fight with us. And so we respond. They picked a fight with people who were not at war with them. And they allowed horrible people to take power. And so while the average person may not have been individually responsible for what occurred, the society and the culture as a whole were responsible for what occurred. And so the response at the very end of the war was punitive bombings of civilian populations because a lesson was being taught to the German people that what had happened and what they allowed to happen against their neighbors was absolutely beyond what was acceptable. And so you end up with this concept that perhaps the Western laws of war and the Western values of war aren't really appropriate. They're describing governments that are at war with each other. Or you have soldiers who are in uniform who are the appropriate targets. But much more frequently, you have cultures that are at war with each other. And the lines that we draw between civilian and, 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 and combatant are not nearly so clear. And the West has had a terrible time with those sorts of situations. But I think perhaps the Torah reading of Shoftim was giving us an answer. The answer is explicitly say, we're not getting involved. We're not looking for the glory of the United States in any conventional sense, or the glory of Israel in any conventional sense. Our goal is to live our own lives in a well-regulated way, a way in which we care for one another, a way in which we serve God or whatever our value system happens to be within our own borders. And then if somebody else decides, somebody with whom we have no beef decides to attack us, even if it's a government that's just simply overseeing people who are not supportive of the government, but are willing to look the other way while the government takes power and dominates things, then we have an obligation to punish the society that attacked us. Applied in a modern conventional sense, looking at Israel as an example, obviously this level of response does not apply the Palestinian and the neighboring countries' populations. Whether or not we agree with them, they have a grievance. The grievance is quite possibly, quite reasonably, a reasonable grievance. It's a real argument. It's a real conflict in that regard. But then you go further afield and you look at Iran. Israel has no borders with Iran. Israel has no populations that they have dis displaced. Iran's desire to attack Israel 
is something that is not reciprocated. It's something that is inherently destructive and something that would be justifiably responded to, depending on the level of attack Iran launched, in quite a punitive way. Obviously, we don't want to get there. We want to enable the Iranian people to rebel against their own leadership so that there's no need for us to get to the punitive war stage of things. But nonetheless, that's kind of the idea. So this foreign policy could look decent for the United States as well. We'll retreat. We'll go within our own borders. We'll manage our own people. We won't get entangled and make promises that everybody knows we won't keep. But when our borders, our society is attacked, then we will respond with overwhelming and destructive force. That's a way for other people to leave you alone. What about saving the world? What about liberal democracy? What about raising other people up? What about bringing freedom to the world, which the United States has long seen as its mission? Well, the example that Israel uses is to be an example to the nation. And perhaps the United States is more effective as an example than anything else. But when we replace the need for countries in Europe to defend themselves, or countries in Asia to defend themselves, we do make them weaker. We can provide help, we can provide support, we can provide whatever it happens to be. But the entanglement of promising our own men to defend other people, ultimately, almost in inevitably, leads to broken promises. So, that's what I wanted to talk about this week. Let me know what you think about this format. Let me know what you think about uh, this approach. Obviously, I'm sure there are things I've said that I regret saying already, um, but uh, I've tried to speak in a reasonable way and an intelligent way. If you like this format, if you like me just kind of blathering on about things, go ahead and let me know. And if not, you can let me know as well. Thank you, and have a great week.